Standard Issue for all women. Hello and welcome to episode 96 of the Standard Issue podcast. I'm Hannah Dunleavy and I'm really enjoying the irony of 2020 being the year my eyesight goes to total shit. We're doing things slightly differently in this episode in that we've no bush telegraph for you because we've not all been in the same part of the country this week. Mick and I have been up in the fine city of Newcastle at our January in conversation event with the boss Sarah Milliken the excellent Kate Fox and the totally charming Lucy Beaumont. It was great fun. Thank you for coming, if you did. We sold that show out too, so I can absolutely confirm Newcastle, we will be back. Now, London. I want you to imagine I'm giving you that look that your mum did when she bought you that really expensive toy you've been nagging her for for Christmas and then you never played with it. If we're going to keep doing shows in London, we need you to turn up. And here's your chance. Consider it your Valentine's Day present to us, because our next show is February the 14th, where our guests will be actor and all-round gem Pauline Feckin McLean and political correspondent, comedian and withstander of Twitter twattage, Aisha Hazarika. So, if you want to spend Valentine's Day with a bunch of welcoming women, get yourself over to our website, standardissuepodcast.com. So, enough of that. What's coming up this week, I hear you ask. Well, back in October, Mickey caught up with author Kylie Reid to chat about her incredible debut fiction, Such a Fun Age, a smart and witty racial satire that looks at privilege and growing up. Jen's chatting to standard issue fave Paula Maguire about the joy of trying new things and overcoming anxiety. And in Jenny Off the Block, she's talking to former British number one and now Eurosport pundit Annabelle Croft about the upcoming Australian Open. But first... On Monday, I managed to get some time on the phone with Joan Smith, author, journalist and chair of the Mayor of London's Violence Against Women and Girls Board. We talked about the recent and horrific Cyprus rape case. If you've missed this story, a young, unnamed and long may that continue, British woman was convicted of public mischief after she withdrew an accusation of gang rape while on holiday in Cyprus. An attack she remains adamant happened. And you know what? We believe her. I chatted to Joan about what went so wrong in this case and what it tells us about the way rape accusations are dealt with, not just in Cyprus, but here in the UK too. I started off by asking what she knew about the latest on the case. As far as I can tell, where the case has got to now leaves her in a pretty terrible situation. I mean, at least she's back in this country, having been stuck in Cyprus for for five months and having spent, I think, four or five weeks actually on remand in prison. She's now back in this country, but the problem is that she has a criminal conviction and that has awful possible consequences for her future life, including any career she might choose. So her lawyers are very clear that they are going to appeal against that conviction, which is for a rather strange offence called public mischief. But it's not at all clear how long that appeal will take. I mean, it might be months, it might be years. And even then, if the result is not what we'd all like, which is the conviction being quashed, then I think the plan is to go to one of the European courts as well. Obviously, you work in this field and we do a lot. So I have to say, horrifying though this story is, surprising it certainly isn't. This is 
not just a problem with Cyprus. It's symptomatic of a larger problem with the, the way women are treated when they make accusations of rape. Oh, absolutely. And we know in this country that there's been a collapse in the both in the conviction rate and the number of rape cases that are actually ending in a um, resulting in a charge and a court case. So I haven't got the figures in front of me, but I think the conviction rate is, is down to about 3% of cases reported to the police. And the number of cases that are being sent to the Crown Prosecution Service and resulting in charges has gone down. So there is a widespread problem, I'd say a systemic problem, with the way rape investigations are carried out and also the attitude towards rape victims more generally. I think there is a a kind of persistent underlying disbelief which you don't get with any other kind of crime. You know, if you report a burglary or your car being stolen, there isn't an almost automatic assumption that you're making it up. But that seems to be what happens in, in, in rape cases over and over again. I mean, I've been a journalist for 25 years, and this is genuinely one of, I would say, one of the more disturbing stories I've come across. And you would hope that that would have happened at the start of my career, not still happening 25 years later. Yes, I mean, I mean in this country, there are particular... Any country has particular problems with it. So in this country, you know, there's been a cut in the number of police officers. The officers investigating rapes are often hugely overburdened. They have too many cases at once. And there is this whole issue of demanding a huge amount of digital material, not from the defendant, but from the from the complainant. And the net effect is you can actually see when you look at rape cases that end in a conviction, it's often because the man is, is a multiple rapist. He will turn out to have attacked several women mm. or or indeed dozens of women, which is the case of John Warboys, the black cab rapist. And what seems to happen is that juries are reluctant to believe one woman, especially when it's her word against his, which is what they always say. They're more comfortable with coming to a guilty verdict if there's more than one victim and if there's several victims and then they don't know each other. So there's a pattern of behavior. But the, the, the woman who accuses one man or men of a single attack on one occasion, that's a really, really hard case to get a conviction in. It shouldn't be like that, should it? And yet that is the story we hear over and over again. Now, I've seen some stuff, just briefly going back to Cyprus, I've seen some people talking about how we should be boycotting Cyprus. And I can understand the argument that, obviously, that would be something that would send a powerful message to Cyprus. But on the other hand, this isn't unique to Cyprus. Oh, yes, that's certainly true. But I think I think one of the problems with the Cyprus case is just how quickly they came to the conclusion that she was lying. I mean, I remember when it was first reported back in July last year, and it was reported as um, a young British woman making a very serious allegation of gang rape. And then within a couple of weeks, we heard that she had supposedly retracted, that the accused men, there were 12 Israelis, young men, that they they had been freed and allowed to go back to Israel. And what I thought at the time was a gang rape investigation is very complex and difficult, particularly in these circumstances where you'd have to do a very, very careful, long, you know, series of interviews with her in in a, in a situation where she didn't feel traumatized again. You would have to collect the forensic evidence very carefully. You look for evidence on the phones of the accused boys, all of that kind of thing. And I didn't see how that could possibly have happened and come to a concrete conclusion in about 12 days. And of course, 
you know, part of the major problem with the Cypriot justice system, and each justice system has its own problems, as I said, is that they don't, as a habit, they don't routinely record interviews with victims or suspects. So this young woman, who we would think was enormously traumatized and probably very nervous if she was on her own in a room just with with male officers interrogating her, they actually picked her up, I think, on a Saturday evening. They kept her until the early hours of the morning. The interview went on for something like seven hours. The woman officer who had been involved in the investigation wasn't around on that evening. So here is a young woman who's completely traumatized in a foreign country, taken to a police station and interrogated for seven hours on her own. She says she asked for legal representation, was denied it. And in the end, she signs this supposed retraction, which doesn't even seem to be in straightforward English. And on the basis of that, the whole investigation is dropped and and she is then charged with effectively wasting police time. And that seemed to me incredibly shocking in this case, a denial of due process and justice. But then again, I see things in the UK. For example, there's there's an issue with taking the victim's phone. And quite often women are left without a phone for months while an investigation takes place, which in many ways is, is A, it's very, it feels very invasive, it's problematic if that's your work phone perhaps and it's got things in it that you need. But also I think that not having a phone now in today's society makes you as a woman feel intrinsically unsafe. Yes, and, and you know, I've heard people say, well, can't, why can't they just buy another, another handset? But phones are actually now, smartphones are very, very expensive computers. And I think there's lots of girls of 19 or 20 who, if their phone is taken from them for months for an investigation, simply can't afford to replace it and will have to rely on a cheap handset, which, as you say, won't have masses of work information and things like that on it. So... This is something that City Hall we're very concerned about. Um, And so um, there are two complaints to the Information Commissioner's Office as we speak. One of them is from an organization called Big Brother Watch, and they've complained about this um, routine asking for the victim's phone and spending ages downloading all the contents and looking at all kinds of material which isn't relevant. And actually, when we talk to the Information Commissioner's Office, they raise something which is very interesting, which is that even if a woman gives permission to the police to access her mobile phone, that means they're accessing the data from dozens, possibly hundreds of other people who sent emails, sent yeah. texts and so on, who haven't given their permission. And that rises too. We, we have complained, I, as chair of the Vaud Board and the Information Commissioner Claire Waxman, we've put in a separate complaint which is about the request to sign these things called Stafford Forms where you, you give permission for the police to access any personal information that they think relevant. So this might be school records, college records, work records, medical records. We're very concerned about this because if they find something, they say that the, the CPS, the Crown Prosecution Service, will say, well, that's got to be handed to the defence. And we know of cases where young women haven't wanted to reveal the fact that, for example, they might have been treated for anorexia a few years ago. Yeah. Because if that goes to the defence, that will actually be used. It's completely irrelevant information, but it might be used to suggest that they are mentally unstable or something like that. There's also issues about privacy. So, for example, a woman might not want to give access to her medical records if she's had an abortion, which, which her family don't know about. 
So Claire and I and several women's organisations have made a complaint to the Information Commissioner's Office saying that a mass of irrelevant information is being demanded from victims. And then there's the other complaint about mobile phones. We're hoping to get um, a, a, a response from the Information Commissioner early this year. So we're waiting to see where that's going to go. But it is very, very worrying. Yeah. Can I ask what, as a member of the media... <laughs> What the media can do to try to help, because I feel like a lot of the headlines I saw around the case in Cyprus certainly didn't. Yes, I I agree completely. There was a BBC headline. So the day um, she was in court quite early in the morning, because Cyprus is a couple of hours ahead of the UK, and the BBC had a headline on its website saying something along the lines of British, British girl freed um after after false rape allegation they didn't put false rape allegation in inverted commas and this was this happened quite a lot and what what i thought was that that the media should be saying young woman free after false rape conviction which she challenges you know that it should be clear from the headline that there's been a court case she has this conviction but she except that it that it was fair or just. So I thought the way the case was reported, I mean, she, she has this kind of hanging around her neck now that she supposedly made a false rape allegation. But since the rape allegation wasn't thoroughly investigated, as far as I can see, I don't think that conviction is safe. And I, I think that should have been much, much clearer in the reporting of the case in this country. But there's another point, which is that The way cases are reported when a case is dropped shortly before it's due to go to court or the accused man is found not guilty. And there's a kind of immediate assumption that this means that the complainant was lying. And we have to, I mean, you know this, we have to explain over and over again that the fact that a case doesn't go to court or that the man is found not guilty simply means that there wasn't sufficient evidence to come to a guilty verdict. It doesn't actually say anything about the the veracity of the complainant and you know this problem comes up over and over again that the woman is then treated as though she is the guilty party and and that we know she made up the allegation when it may simply be that the cps or the jury have decided that there wasn't enough evidence on which to convict and that seems to be a point that's incredibly hard to get across yeah particularly in cases where it is quite literally boils down to your word against theirs yes Exactly, exactly. And of course, you know, it often will be that, particularly because we know that in the majority of rape cases, the victim and the defendant weren't previously known to each other. And I think I think there's a kind of ideal rape case that juries and the CPS and the media like, which is, you know, the idea of the the young woman who probably sings in the church choir and is walking home on a dark evening and is jumped by a stranger. But actually, that is not the majority of rape cases, no. not not in the least. No, absolutely not. But you are right. I have previously heard it referred to as the bad rape, as if there yes. is a version of good rape. You, yes, yeah. exactly. Or, or a real rape. Yes, yeah. yes, yes, yes. I mean, a huge amount of rape, as you know, takes, takes place place in the context of domestic violence in violent relationships women are often forced into having sex against their will those cases the police and the cps think those cases on the whole are quite difficult to try which may well be true but that's not a reason for not trying to do it absolutely and i think as well i mean we're not to be it's not just the media that we have i mean obviously social media and you you have cases like the uh, the ched evans case where suddenly it, it is it's just open to public debate 
And on the one hand, it, it can be helpful, say, with the Cyprus case, in which it seems to unify groups of people in a let's do a protest. But in the same way, I think it normalises a certain attitude towards rape in which it's the woman's fault, even if it did happen. You know, even if this did happen, you know, what was she wearing? What was she doing out at that time on her own, et cetera, et cetera? Yes, data has become the new short skirt that girls may, you know, be out with their friends and have a few drinks and they may text a friend about, oh, I fancy him or, you know, um, making a joke about, you know, liking rough sex or something, which tells you absolutely nothing about an individual encounter they, they might have with a man months later. But one of the problems we've got is that, you know, the police now look at the, the phone and that can be given to the defence who will say, well, isn't it the case that she actually she wanted rough sex? And there's this assumption that you can. In, there's, a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a question about interpretations. I remember the police telling me in London telling me about um, a young woman from Central Europe who had been raped. And I think it was a stranger rape. And the CPS told the police that they had to have a translation of something like 800 texts in her own language on her mobile phone. And a very senior officer in London said to me, how are we supposed to interpret how a young woman from that, from another country talks to her friends? We don't actually know what it means and what, what relationship it has to behavior. But because mobile phones are now available, everyone jumps to the conclusion that they know exactly what a jokey text means and it can be used in court against the against the complainant. Well, that, that that's insane because I, there's sure if we looked at my phone now, there are messages that I've sent people that out of context of the rest of the conversation might yeah. lead to assumptions about me that are absolutely not true. One of the things that we know is that while, I mean, this seems to me completely the wrong way around, that, that it's, the, it's the complainant, the victim, who is being asked to hand over her phone, and it might be completely and utterly downloaded, years of material, thousands and thousands of pages, which, uh, which are then combed through. And a senior cop told me recently that um, that the detect- detectives investigating a rape case, they actually have to get permission from a very senior officer even to ask to see the, the defendant's phone. You know, there is a, there is a wow. lack of balance here. There is an assumption that the complainant's privacy is completely lost if she makes a, a rape allegation, whereas there's all these, you know, the... the, the Anything that belongs to the defendant is hedged around with all these concerns for his privacy and, and, and all of that. In fact, uh, you know, one of the things I've talked to the Victims Commissioner in London about is we think that the, you know, there is a right under the, under the European Charter of Human Rights to a fair trial. But it has to be balanced by the complainant's right to privacy. And I think that balance is completely wrong at the moment. Absolutely. And if you look at the Cyprus case, you know, there's kind of two travesties of justice going on there at the same time, isn't there? There's what happened to her and there's what didn't happen to the people that attacked her. Yes. And, and, you know, one of the things that I am very surprised about is that there doesn't seem to be any move to reopen the rape investigation. I mean, given that she's back in this country, it seems to me it should be possible if she agreed for British detectives to interview her in a, in a proper setting where she had support maybe from an ISVA, an independent sexual violence advisor, to actually get a coherent version of, of what happened to her. And also there, there is forensic evidence that at least three or four men did actually have sex with her that night. So I don't understand why there isn't a push to have you know, a joint 
new investigation by the British and Cypriot police. And, it's, and it seems to me that that's really a first step you'd take because, you know, she is challenging the conviction. The conviction, her conviction, is based on the idea that no rape took place. So surely it's quite important to establish what evidence there is to support her, her story. It's, it is mind-blowing. It, it is, isn't it? <laughs> it, make, it makes me quite depressed and quite angry because there's, there's a really clear message that's sent out to the world with decisions like this. And number one is, men, if you behave badly, you can probably get away with it if you frame it correctly. And women just don't bother. <laughs> no justice awaits a woman in that situation, which is horrific, really. And it's not in Cyprus. It's not just, this just doesn't apply to holidaymakers, you know, foreign tourists. There's also, you know, if this is how the police go about investigating a rape allegation, what happens to local women? Yeah. Who, you know, local woman whose husband may have beaten her up and forced her into having sex. I mean, I don't imagine they would have much confidence in in reporting um, to the police and, and trying to get a sympathetic hearing. So there's that. But the other thing I do think about this case is I, I think it's been talked about, you know, given all the caveats we've already mentioned, I do think it's created a, a, a space where we've been able to talk about rape in a different way. And I think, you know, there has been an outpouring of sympathy in Cyprus, in Israel. I mean, people came over from Israel to actually stand outside the court and say they believed her. There's been an outpouring here. Um, you know, there's been a lot of space to talk about it in, in the media. And I think that that feels to me slightly different. And you know, it's very unfortunate for her, and yeah. I, I hope she, I hope she's taken some comfort from the fact that people are so outraged on her behalf. But I think it has actually, you know, it really has raised the question of why are people so quick to disbelieve rape victims? It's raised that question in a way that I haven't really seen done before. So maybe that is something we can take from it. Yeah. Well, my final question was going to be, how can people... Help. I do think there's several things that can happen. I mean, one is I think it's really important to challenge really terrible headlines. And I went on Twitter and challenged the BBC and said this is a really terrible headline. And other people kind of then, it got tweeted a few, few hundred times or something. And one or two people came on and said, I'm going to make a formal complaint to the BBC. And I thought, that's really good. I wish people would complain about bad headlines. But another thing, and this almost never comes up, I wish... The safety of women was an issue on the doorstep in elections. And I wish that when people knocked on the door, you know, because I, I mean, obviously I've done masses of canvassing myself. I don't think anybody has ever said to me, I'm really worried about the safety of women. I'm really worried about domestic, you know, the extent of domestic violence. I'm really worried about the lack of support for victims. If you're elected or your candidate's elected, what are you going to do to ensure that women who report violence and sexual violence are taken seriously. And I think it has to become that kind of issue on the doorstep to, to wake up politicians to the fact that women are being in this country are being let down by a criminal justice system that's failing to convict even multiple rapists. Thank you so much for your time, Joan. This has been great. Thank you very much. Really good to talk to you. And you. Hey there, you lot. If you want to follow every aspect of our lives on social media, and why wouldn't you, because you're only human, you can! We're on Twitter as a team, at Standard Issue UK, or individually on at Inspiragen, at That Dunleavy, and at Mixed Noonan, and I'd like to think it'll be fairly obvious who's who. 
We're on Facebook as well, at Standard Issue Magazine, and even Instagram, at Standard Issue Podcast. Come to us, look at our faces. Hello, Mickey here. So you are about to hear a chat I had with author Kylie Reid back in October 2019. Oh, 2019, remember that. Anyway, Kylie and I talk a bit about racism and white privilege, which means that very noticeable by their absence are any thoughts about certain members of the British press and the horrifically biased coverage of anything Meghan Markle does, says, wears, you get the gist. You've probably seen the gist and are as appalled as we are. But yes, this interview being done in the past is the reason there's no chat about what's going on right now. Nevertheless, hopefully there's a lot to get your teeth stuck into. Hello, I am at Bloomsbury HQ with author Kylie Reid. Hi, Kylie. Thanks for having me. So I feel like I should have said hot new author. (laughs) (laughs) I'm trying every day. (laughs) (laughs) Because we're chatting in October and your debut book, Such a Fun Age, isn't actually out in the UK until January. And it's already had the film rights snapped up by Sight Unseen. How are you feeling right now? I mean, it's a mixture of ecstatic and excited and exhausted and panicky, all of those things (laughs) at once. Yeah. I saw a lovely tweet from you saying that you had so much energy right now that you were looking for people to go like rob a bank or do something very physical oh, yeah. and adrenaline Anyone based. wants to physically fight or anything now, between now and the new year is the time when I'm ready to do that. Yeah. So I have read It's Such a Fun Age and found it smart, nuanced, fun, and it feels very, very real. Good. Can you tell the listeners what it's all about? Please? Absolutely. So my novel, Such a Fun Age, starts on a Saturday night in September. A young black babysitter is called to babysit. She's extremely broke, so she says yes, and she goes to a grocery store with the child. There, Amira is accused of kidnapping this child. Someone pulls out their phone, and she's humiliated. The child's mother tries extremely hard to right the night's wrongs, and from there it turns into a comedy of good intentions. I think this is a book about race and privilege, but also domestic and petty biases that mm-hmm. kind of plague us every day, even though we have moved on so far from from uh, the racism that people speak of in, in the States. Okay, this I was going to touch on this later, but you brought it up now. Okay. And I think it's really, really interesting in such a fun age, because there is some of the blatant racism, which I think oh, is yeah. people's go-to particularly white people's go-to when you think of the word racism, in that Amira is stopped in the store and she's not allowed to leave. She's followed round. People are watching her in a way that they wouldn't a white person. Mm -hmm. But there's also a flip side of it, which shows how insidious racism is, in that there's the great white saviour aspect of Mm -hmm. stuff. There's also Kelly, who becomes romantically entangled with Amira, or Amira becomes romantically entangled with him who fetishizes women of color. Mm -hmm. So there's loads of different levels of racism. Was this something you really wanted to explore? Absolutely. I feel, especially it was very intentionally, the book is placed pre-Trump era because Trump, for a number of reasons, people, I mean, he harms people's lives and people don't like him for that reason. But one reason that I get annoyed with so many things is that he's a very two-dimensional racist villain. And mm-hmm. it makes it seem like, oh, racism has just started with, with Trump, when really 
dregs of slavery have existed and perpetuate American life and have for hundreds of years. And so I wanted to show these examples of how the history of slavery exists now and and how all of the black women raising white children, how those stereotypes and the power dynamics from those haven't gone away completely. So you brought up Trump. I'm going to put it out there. I don't think he's a good guy. I'm with you. (laughs) Controversial opinion. As we talk, Uh impeachment is hopefully. I know it's crazy this morning. Yes, I don't. Yeah, who knows what will happen? Are you excited? I feel like the entire presidency of his has made me realize how long everything takes and then how much nothing happens after those waits. So I think I'm just more intrigued at this point. I've tempered my feelings. And although such a fun age is set pre-Trump, I'd like to ask you about being a woman, and particularly a woman Mm -hmm. of colour, under Trump. How has it been in America? For someone like me who grew up in a well-off family with support, I mean, it's a completely different situation than someone who's in a vulnerable situation like Amira, which is why I wanted to write the class dynamics of this piece. My life won't be affected in the same way as people who are low income, who have chronic illnesses, who have children, who are immigrants. And so I feel like I'm not the person to talk about like exactly how his reign has affected them. Such a fun age tackles the intersectionality of intersectionality almost, mm-hmm. all the Venn diagrams coming together. And Amira is really relatable because she's in that age group where, you know, you are told you're supposed to be having the most fun, but there's also pressure coming oh, yeah. from everyone telling her how she can better her life. Is that something that you took from your own experience? Oh, yeah. It's such a strange time where uh, suddenly friends make real salaries. And it's also that time period, I don't know if you remember too, that your friends start getting married and then you're a bridesmaid and suddenly you have to pay for these things on your own. And Mm -hmm. it's so difficult. And I was in a lot of service jobs in my 20s. And it's a hard thing when, you know, you want to go on vacation and that costs money, but then you lose money because you're gone from your jobs. It's not like, you know, a quote unquote real adult job, even though the work that you're doing has a tiny margin of error and you're not getting paid very much. And so I wanted to explore that with the mirror and childcare. Something that comes up quite a lot and is really, really important to Amira is health insurance. Mm -hmm. Now, obviously in the UK, we are absolutely blessed to have the NHS, save the NHS people. (laughs) Um, So could you explain a little bit to us who possibly don't understand just how vital that is? I mean... I don't even know where to start. It's so <laughs> vital. I mean, it's a crazy thing. You grew up in the States and it's, you know, the goal is to be a completely dependent person and adult, but that doesn't mean that you are going to be taken care of by the States. I remember when I was working as a babysitter, I thought all the time, what if I fall or what if, you know, a biker hits me and maybe I'm not in a chronic situation where I can ask my parents for help, but maybe I need stitches. And is that going to cost $8,000 or $80 and completely alter the course of my life? And I think that people perform differently when they know that they have a backup And when you don't have a backup, you don't perform as well. And so I think Amira is in that place where she's expected to do perfectly and make all the right decisions or apply to grad school or do this. But she doesn't even know, you know, if she gets sick, if she can go to a doctor or not. It doesn't feel like it's as much of a political hot potato in the States as it should be. I agree. Yeah, I mean, 
no one says to Amira in this book, hey, it's weird that you work so much and you don't have health insurance. That's yeah. crazy. I think she's like a perfect example of what that kind of person looks like when, you know, she's not homeless and she has a graduate degree and still she's suffering a lot. Because even when she's bargaining for a different job to the one that she has with her boss, Alex, which we'll talk about in a right, second, right. health insurance is massive. It's up there and they offer her health insurance only if she takes a pretty drastic pay cut. Mm-hmm. Very common. Yeah. 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 It's wild. It's not okay. I, when I read a book, I just want to really, really love the story, but I also love books that comment on the world that we live in and health insurance is a huge part of that. In the States, yeah. So it's a very unfun, <laughs> like, well, like it's funny. Okay. So I don't know if this is my, like, you know how you have like a biggest pet peeve of the week. This is my biggest okay. pet peeve of this week, which I think relates, you know, when someone says, Oh, what do you want for your birthday? And you say, you know, actually, like, I really need a gift card to uh, get my car fixed. Mm -hmm. Oh, well, that's not fun. Pick something fun. What's something fun that you can want? And I feel like uh, that denial is the same thing of like, oh, well, health insurance, that's a boring topic. I don't want to talk about that. But it's what people need. And Amira's, you know, asking for it even when she's not asking for it, I believe. But a lot of people, that's not fun for them to give. They'd rather give her a bottle of wine or something. There we go. That takes us very neatly onto Alex. So Alex is, I'm going to say, the great white hope that (laughs) that Amira works for and is very keen to do everything she can to make Amira family or everything she thinks she can to make Amira family without actually looking at what Amira might want and need, such as health insurance. It's a very interesting dynamic between those two it is i know a lot of alex's and i think i have some of alex in me too uh she means very well she's very organized she's good at what she does and she also does that thing where she has kind of like a little friend crush on amira and she thinks she's cool and wants to be friends with her but her intentions do not match what amira actually needs all the time and that gets her into trouble She goes at it like it's the start of a romantic relationship. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Which I like. I mean, I've had friend crushes on people where I'm like, oh, how can I do this? At the same time, they usually aren't people that I'm paying to work for me, too. That exchange of goods makes it very awkward. So that transactional nature of their relationship very much comes to the fore and explodes without being too spoilery right in Alex's face. Mm -hmm. Do you think it's possible to be mates with your boss? Oh, totally. I've had, I've had bosses that I love. I've had moms that I babysat for that I'm still, I still talk to now. And I did feel like family at the time, but I think the attempt to even the playing field in trappings of friendship will just ruin a relationship. I personally would rather someone lean into that power dynamic and show me what the rules are so I can then work within them. But that's yeah. just me. So Yeah. Yeah. And it's not the only transactional relationship in Amira's life. No. Because she gets involved with a white guy called Kelly, mm-hmm. who seems like, again, wants to be a bit great white savior. Mm-hmm. But she really falls for him. They really like each other. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think it's important to remember that, like... Uh, a great boss, a great boyfriend can really be good to you and you can like them and they can be really charming and they can hold all of these biases harmoniously because humans are complicated. And without wanting to be too spoilery, which yeah. is always really hard. I know, about, but, I know, sorry. <laughs> but it, it doesn't become apparent to Amira until much, much later 
that she is one in a line of women of colour that Kelly is attracted to or mm-hmm. has been involved with. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think, too, I have to remember Amira's 25 and the, you know, prerequisite for me to date someone when I was 25 was, like, cute, nice to me, we're just hanging out. Yeah. And so, you know, it's not really her goal to, like, look into his past in the beginning. And then realizing these things, you have to say, okay, well, is this a problem? I'm not sure. Because, you know, Amira likes dating tall guys. Is that wrong? Is that okay? But, like, what does it mean that he, fe- like likes dating black women is it problematic because it definitely can be it takes her a minute to figure out what that means to her and what she wants to put up with i think that's it as well i think like obviously there are criticisms of whiteness in such a fun age and i think they are very sharp and very neatly drawn Mm -hmm. as someone who is white and reading it i was like oh fuck there was stuff Mm -hmm. that i recognized in being worried about not saying the wrong thing or being so concerned about doing the right thing that you actually sort of gloss over the person as a person right that must be something you've encountered for well i I don't know how old are you that many years i'm 32 yes (laughs) for sure um but i think what's important to to remember too is that there are white people in the book who do those things and there's also black people in the book who do those things Mm -hmm. i feel like you can't talk about race without talking about class it's people in power and how they show affection and help for people who are not in power. And I've definitely experienced those things. I've definitely uh, made plans to meet with someone who heard my name, which is Kylie Reed. I have a very white name and then seen me and said, oh, uh, sorry, and like needed a moment to check themselves before they know how to act around me. So I've definitely experienced those things. At the same time, I'm experiencing them from a privileged background. Those things don't hurt me in the same way that they would hurt someone like Amira. Yeah. Yeah. So there are some massive themes in there. Race, class, privilege, coming of age. Mm -hmm. Why did you want to deal with them? I love awkward moments so much. (laughs) I just love exploring them. Unfortunately for my characters, like putting them inside of them. But I feel like bigger socioeconomic matters become real to me when I see them in very small cases. Mm -hmm. I love, I just... I mean, obviously, I'm obsessed with books and reading. I love to become obsessed with people that I don't know and just so in their world. So the first thing was just to make a really propulsive read because that's what I like. And the second thing was to make really complicated characters. I hate two-dimensional villains. Like I said, I wanted people who had good and bad qualities. Because that's how humans are. I agree. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just wanted to make that super real for, for my characters because that's kind of what I like to read, so... Yeah, it's it's a very very fast read. I flew through it, okay. but then I did go back and like reread sections and you know try and work out how I felt about Kelly, who to be honest raised a few red flags for me anyway. Just yes. like, he he wants to be quite controlling. He's that bit older than Amira because it isn't just about race; it's also about just everyday relationships. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's those things in the beginning. I, my my girlfriend and I love red flags; those teeny tiny little things of saying, "Is this okay? Is this not okay?" So I wanted to fill the book with those. Yeah, there's loads of them. Mm-hmm. Have, have you seen any BoJack Horseman? Yes, yes, my husband likes it. Yes, yeah. it's very good. The, when Lisa Kudrow is playing the owl that goes out with Bojack for a while, they're dating, and it inevitably crashes and burns because Bojack, she says, the trouble with rose-tinted glasses is that all the red flags just look like flags. Yes, that's a really good... Yes, it's true. Yeah, in the beginning, you're like, oh, no, 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 he's just funny. It's it's great. Yeah, yeah, and then later, you're like, I should have known on that day. Yeah. Yeah, we give a hard, ourselves a hard time for hindsight, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. At the same time, I'm not, like, 
the greatest at first dates, you know, and like maybe I would say the wrong things before. And I used to be extremely conservative when I was like in my early twenties and I'm not anymore. So I wanted to balance those red flags with people's ability to change too. It's Mm -hmm. hard to know. Yeah. And the other thing that I think is really prominent in such a fun age, and this is when it does become such a fun age, Mm -hmm. is her friendship circle. It's like ride or die. It's gorgeous. Thank you. Yes. I love really loyal friend groups like that. I really wanted to craft ride or die friendships that also give terrible advice. Yeah. Because I feel like that's very common all the (laughs) time. Yes. Yeah, for sure. Her friends and Alex's friends are super important to the decisions that they make for sure. And also that thing of even when you love someone, they're your, they're going to be your BFF. You know, you absolutely adore them, and you know they're looking out for you. And you can tell it's good advice. You still like fuck it off. <laughs> Just yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Tamara will say things sometimes that Alex is like, "Ooh, I don't really agree with you on that." And it's that decision of, "Do I say something?" No, I'll just pa- let it pass. Let it pass. And I think that's a very human emotion that I wanted to put into it. When you were writing such a fun age. I guess people would assume that you associate most with Amira because she is the central character. She's a babysitter. You've been a babysitter. Which were your favorite characters? Which did you have most? Maybe fun's not the right word, but which did you enjoy writing the most and really get your teeth stuck into? The characters I like the most and everything are never the main characters, <laughs> I feel, and things that I read and that I write. I was most fascinated with writing Tamara. I think that she is a type of person that isn't often explored in literature, a powerful black woman who has a bit of regressive thinking when it comes to helping low-income people, but she is really savvy, and I like exploring her code switching a bit with who she can be with and how she gets them to do things. I feel like that's what a like a truly manipulative character looks like. Someone who's really good at seeming like really familiar to someone. So Tamara definitely has my heart in terms of like a writing challenge. Yeah. Yeah, she's the first to sort of hug Amira, tell her what she should be watching on television. She's patronizing. Right they have got very different class privilege mm-hmm. it's so mm-hmm. interesting yeah, yeah, yeah i loved putting them in a room together so probably tamra she's my favorite <laughs> yeah big question given that it's all blowing up in the most exciting way but what's next oh my goodness um i am working on the film adaptation with uh lena waith and her team which is really exciting and just kind of like a master class in script writing which is great and then very slowly thinking about the next novel, but give me like three or four years for that one, maybe. We'll see what happens. No, no, I want yes. to see that. <laughs> you sound like my agent, yes. <laughs> yes. Did you realize when you were writing such a fun age, did you have any inkling it was going to be as big and oh have God. as much a buzz as it's got? Not at all. Not at all. You, you have to write the book that you want to write, and my goal was to write a book that would set me up to teach and do it again. And so I am ecstatic that people really resonate with it so far. It's been really exciting. Um, And I'm like just so relieved that I get to do it again. I love storytelling. So, yeah. Thank you so much for chatting to me. It's been a pleasure. You're so welcome. Thank you. Hello, Hannah here. Just wanted to let you know that if you like what we do, you can help us by rating and reviewing us on iTunes. It really does help especially if you give us five stars. Did that sound threatening enough? Give us five stars. I'm joined on the phone by the wonderful, the lovely, the very inspirational adventurer, speaker and author, 
Paula Maguire. Hello, Paula. Hello, how are you? I'm all right, thank you. And you? Yeah, I'm doing well, thanks. Yeah, yeah. you've been busy, I see, via your, your yeah. social media channel. So last time I spoke to you, you were having a go at what you called your year of fear, where you were confronting the things that you found scariest and having a go yeah. at those as part of a sort of long line of challenges. I mean, it all starts a bit before then. So for anyone who hasn't heard you on the podcast before, because you have been on a few times, do you want to sort of take us back to the start and tell us? Sure. It's been a bit of a journey over the last eight years, oh my about goodness. 2012. That feels um, like a long time I, ago, doesn't it? Yeah, it does, doesn't it? What's happened in that time? Mm. I was a completely different different person back, back then. There's no way you would have got me on the phone never mind on, on a podcast, because I was just a terrified wreck of a of a person who had suffered with anxiety and, and all manners of panic and things for 30 years to the point that I could barely get out of my own front door. And and that's when I, I decided to change things, to try and give myself a chance to, to fight back and um, and to build a life for myself. And that's, that's when I became the least likely adventurer in the world <laughs> because I was terrified of everything and I just started setting myself challenges that I had no business really trying you know I had absolutely no business trying all 17 sports in the Commonwealth Games or trying all the jobs that kids wanted when they grew up or trying to swim around Britain or doing what, what you spoke of there which was my my year of fear and now I am attempting to try something new every day so that means everything from really small things, really banal things that I feel like I missed out on over 30 years of just really struggling with, with anxiety and hiding from everything everything new to to all the big ridiculous things that, that I usually try, like, I don't know, bog snorkelling or sword fighting <laughs> or, or all those sort of things. Well, very eventful. And by the way, I just want to say the the most unlikely adventurer ever is... In my book, the best kind of adventurer. Like, who cares about all these, like, posh boys getting paid loads of money to do posh things? Yeah. Like... I'm not getting sponsored by anybody to do... Well, why not? Come on, guys, pull your fingers out. This is ridiculous. Because, you know, as much as, like... I don't know, pull a random name out of a hat, Leveson Wood or whoever, like yeah. walking across Africa is, amazing. you know, amazing and a, and a fantastic feat. And I, I enjoyed that programme. I've got his book. You know, there's a lot to be said, actually, for, for the smaller things. Absolutely. And that's why that's why I've kind of come full circle to, to do this again, is, is because it was in the wake of the failure of, of the Big Mad Swim when I attempted ridiculously to swim around Britain um, and after that I realised that the things that I get the most out of are the really small things that as I say that I feel like I miss out on in life because I was busy hiding myself away and, and being being frightened of people and it's those things I feel that make more of a difference to to myself as well as as well to everyone everyone else. I try and get people to come along with me and to to realise that you know it's adventurism out there in some world for middle class folk who can afford to do it. It's in all the little things that kids try. You know all the little things that, that kids get the joy out of, like flying a kite and things like that. That we just don't do as adults, and and we should be out there doing. So I'm going to be trying all those 
just really small things, like I'm joining the brownies for a day. Um, you know, I'm <laughs> climbing a tree. I've never done any of these things. So, you never in the brownies? So no, I was, I was too socially anxious. My sister was in the brownies, mm. but when it came time that I could go along, I was old enough, I just couldn't face doing it so no so I'm going back retrospectively <laughs> as an adult to join to join the brownies so these things that some of us miss out on or some of us have done but we just kind of cut out of our lives if we grow up because we feel like the childish and that they're not for us they are for us and and we absolutely should be doing them and and hopefully in these 366 days <laughs> I'll be trying to to show other people that they can go out and play hopscotch if they really want to there's no reason not to. There is adventure in everything, really, isn't there? I think we spoke about this before on the podcast, but one of the things I found when I was doing my Olympics challenge, I mean, I kind of got there in a way because things had become so sort of stagnant in my life. I was just so bored. Yeah. I just needed to try and shake things up a bit and do things a bit differently. And, and that has actually had... I mean, I wouldn't say this would be like typical for, for everyone who, who, <laughs> who did this, but that's had a huge impact on my life and in a lot of different ways and one of the things that I've sort of really valued from that experience was kind of reclaiming that I don't know childlike quality or something of trying something new and and just having a go yeah. at something and and the just like the simple joys of like throwing yourself on a crash mat you know yes <laughs> so, yeah absolutely as we become adults we we get so caught up in, you know, trying to be good at things, trying to be the best at things, doing the things that, that we're good at. You know, oh, you're you're good at maths. You should do maths for the rest of your life. But what about all the stuff that you don't know if you're good at or if you don't know if you'll, you even just enjoy because you've never given them a go? So I intend to be the person who has tried everything and is potentially the worst at absolutely everything. But I don't really care because, you know, it's, it's in those, as you say, in those experiences of... You know, being the worst in the room at things is just so life affirming, and there's so much joy in them if if you just go in and experience them as you would have when you didn't have those hang ups that that society puts on us. Now, I don't want to, um, you know, blow smoke up your ass or anything like that, but what you have done <laughs> is genuinely, genuinely, really inspiring, and and to a lot of people as well. You know, mental health problems are un unfortunately not uncommon at all so anxiety sort of seems to be on the rise a little bit I think there are a lot of sort of external influences now that maybe might be something to do with that certainly a lot of people talk about the influence of of things like social media or news yeah. or just the way we kind of consume things these days how do you manage that I absolutely agree in that you know, anxiety seems to be on the agenda quite a lot now, which which is great. And I spend a lot of time of my free time in schools, you know, talking to young people about, about managing anxiety and about living well with anxiety. And I hear day to day just these, these awful stories of, of people really struggling in, in the world that we're in today. And um, it's a really difficult place to live, particularly if you do have anxiety. I have lots of self-managing techniques that I use um there are days when I just have to stay away from things like social media and, and news and things like that. And my husband will give me just a, a breakdown of, of the important things that I need to know mm -hmm. without giving me any of the overwhelming details because I can get incredibly just worried and, and caught up in things that, that there's really nothing that I can do about. 
I can't cure anxiety, Jenna. I, I wish that I could. I, mm. I want to go out and just wave a magic wand and make it better for everyone, but I can't do that. But what I can do is promote a really positive way of living with it and the fact that you can live really healthy. It's difficult. Don't get me wrong. It's difficult to live a really engaged and healthy life with anxiety because, you know, most days I want to cower away <laughs> and just hide in my bed, but I know that that's just as difficult. And at least living this way, I get to go out and, and meet people and, and try things and, and, and have a good a good life and a good connection with, with the world. So I think my part in it is that hopefully I can show people that there is a way that you can live well with it. And even though it's difficult at times, it's absolutely worth it. And my little part in that is to try and support people in the best way that I can to to live that way. So it's a new year and people probably will be thinking about making changes to their lives because that's sort of, you know, what we tend to do, New Year's resolutions and, and whatnot. Say there's someone listening who suffers from anxiety or, you know, even to a lesser degree, like social awkwardness or, or maybe has no mental health problems whatsoever, but just feeling a little bit stagnant in their lives and they want to go and do something and try something a bit different. What would you suggest to them? How should they go about doing that? I think little steps are always the easiest way. Um, you know, I, I tried little steps, but it didn't kind of work for me. So that's why I went for the, the big challenges. But, you know, there are lots of just little things that you can do in your life that just make you feel a bit a bit better, a bit brighter. You know, there are, there are ways to well-being and things like that. And one of the most important ones for me is connecting with other people. And as much as I love, you know, social media and the internet and things, connecting with other people in person in a really community-based way is, is a great thing to, to just build on your mental health. Um, it's, it sounds really, really small. See the people that you care about more often. Often that's the first thing to go when we all have really busy lives and really hectic mm. lives and we're trying to, you know, do as much as we can and be as productive as we can. And sometimes just connecting or reconnecting with people that, that care about you and that make you feel good is, you know, the best way to just build on, on your happiness and your growth. I think also I do little things like skip, you know, skip along the road, not with a skip note, <laughs> you yeah. know, have a little skip to yourself, touch some trees, you know, chat to someone in a queue, just little things that, Okay, people might think that you're a bit weird doing them, but you will genuinely feel happier in yourself because it is those little childlike moments that that we lose that really make us feel better in life. And I like the idea of of people listening to this going out and having a little skip down the road for themselves. That's a very nice idea yeah. indeed. I like that. Yeah. And also, like you know, people might think you're weird, but it's kind of liberating in a way to go. Well, fuck it, I don't care. I don't care. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I spent so long worrying about what people thought about me. And now I do things just for myself, you know, just mm. without without thinking about it. And if they do think I'm a bit weird, then they think it on my own terms because I'm choosing to do it. You know, <laughs> if they thought I was weird before, then it was maybe because I twitch a bit or, you know, I'm a bit socially awkward and, and that, that made me feel worse because there was nothing I could do about that. If I'm skipping down the street, yeah, people are going to think I'm a bit weird, but that's on my terms, and I'm good with that. So, Prada, are you <laughs> going to be documenting this? I know that I've seen pictures and stuff on Instagram, but will there be other ways of, of people sort of keeping up with what you're up to? 
Lots of it is on, on social media because it is day-to-day. I'm trying something new every day. So social it's media a lot is a great of blogging. Way, you know. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Too much blogging. So I will be doing kind of monthly roundups on the blog and things of, of the best things that I've tried or the most interesting things. And I'm probably doing some YouTube videos of some of the more interesting things that I've done and also just kind of monthly roundups. But if you keep an eye on, on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, things like that, I will just block up your feed with lots of just me eating whelks and um, giving blood and just doing random nonsense and hopefully giving you some ideas of some resolutions that you could make for, for your own new year. Now on, the, on those whelks, how <laughs> on a scale of one to ten... <laughs> How rank was that? It, there is there is no scale that yeah. works for whelk yeah. rankery. It you was cannot quantify whelk rankery. <laughs> you cannot. Um, and I know, you know, while I tried to stomach that one whelk, I can't even pluralise it, Jen, because I only ate one. Um, my mum was busy scoffing, you know, five or six of them. There are people who just love them and who were... Mightily offended by the fact <laughs> that I couldn't stomach one, but um, oh no, it's not for me. As soon as I just took it out of that shell and it just oh. it looks like something that's you know come out of someone's nose. It was oh. just horrific. Um, yeah, not fun at all. And I will not be. I'll not be re- revisiting that one. <laughs> okay, fair <laughs> enough. I wouldn't have visited it in the first place. <laughs> oh. uh, there won't be a follow up. Right. <laughs> Well, on that bombshell, also, I just want to ask you quickly, you have a book that has been published, which is fantastic. Can you tell us a little bit about that for anyone who hasn't heard you on the podcast before and and where they can get hold of it? It's called uh, Must Try Harder because Mm -hmm. Paula Must Try Harder has become a kind of name. It's called Must Try Harder Adventures in Anxiety and it basically just chronicles my spiral into anxiety to the point that I couldn't go out and then the bite back really to stick with it through the first half which is a bit a bit troublesome and a bit grim and then in the second half there's like flying and you know wing walking and things and it's available in in waterstones and all the other book seller places and uh, yeah all good bookshops and the the publisher's proceeds go towards supporting other people with with mental health challenges so an enjoyable read possibly a useful read and also you know a very helpful read for other people as well so that's excellent hopefully paula we love you so much you are so (laughs) much fun to talk to thank you so much for chatting to us and all the best with with your many new endeavors thank you i love you guys too hello mickey here sorry to interrupt your listening pleasure but i just thought As you're having such pleasure listening, you might be up for helping us out in making more content that champions women. That's easy to do. You can just bob along to our Patreon page, www.patreon.com forward slash standard issue. And any spare bunch you might have found in your pocket down the back of the sofa, feel free to chuck it to us. Much obliged. You play ball like a girl. Go on, do one, kid. Jenny off the blocks. I am joined on the phone by former British number one and now pundit for Eurosport, amongst many other places, Annabelle Croft. Hi, Annabelle. Hello. (laughs) So we are talking today about the Australian Open, which is getting underway in earnest next Monday. It's the first Grand Slam of the year. And on the women's side, there were four different winners across the four Grand Slams last year. This seems to be the point about women's tennis that people invariably go on about it a bit so I'll, I'll start off with that 
Are you expecting to see more of the same this year? I think I am, to be honest. I think it's been like that for a couple of years now where every tournament that we attend or we're commentating on or a pundit on, it's really increasingly difficult to predict the outcome of the tournament. Whereas, you know, many, many years ago, you'd get some big rivalries like Chris Everett and Martina Navratilova and you could kind of predict that they probably were going to get to the final from opposite ends of the draw and you'd look towards this heavyweight clash at the end. Whereas now, you know, there's so much strength and depth in the women's game. And so many of them have kind of broken through and made massive headway and progress up the rankings and even gone on to win Grand Slam titles like... Bianca Andreescu, who won at the US Open, uh, beating Serena Williams in the final. You, honestly, you just don't know who's going to come through. And I think that more that youngsters break through and do something spectacular like that, of course, that has a knock-on effect on the rest of the tour. So they think, well, if she can do it, then I can too. Mm. So it's a really interesting time in women's tennis at the moment. A lot of the commentary around that is it's seen as a sort of negative thing, that there aren't these sort of dominant characters like there are on the men's side of the draw you know like the Raffers and the the Djokovic's and the Federer's um, but is it fair to say you see this as a positive thing? I think that the level is extremely high to be honest and I think also what we're seeing once again in the women's game which has been the case in the last year or so or maybe more in the men's game but we're seeing more creativity coming into the game again mm. so we're not just seeing ball bashing from the back of the court we're seeing really intelligent tactical tennis you know from from the players and it you know it's made the game interesting i think and i don't think it's necessarily a bad thing at the moment that we're never sure who's going to come out on top i think it makes it really fascinating i mean i've you know been sitting doing my research ahead of the australian open and it's like well who do i research actually because you get 128 in the draw and um mm. you know you've got to try and think who might do well on the hard courts who who's going to do well in those kind of conditions. But you have to remember, in Australia, it's extremely hot, as we know from all the terrible troubles that they've had with the bushfires and everything. But when you're talking about 40 degrees plus, Mm. you know, you've got to be unbelievably fit to play in those conditions. And that has a massive bearing on it. And also, as you said at the start, it's the very first Grand Slam of the year. So all of these players have finished their seasons in November last year. They've had what's called an off-season where they go away and kind of work on their games. They try and improve certain aspects. And then they, they come back out onto the tour in January. And for some of them, it's a little bit early in the season and they're not quite ready. To, some of them have improved things. Some of them have made alterations to their games. So it's a very intriguing time because you're not quite sure what's going to happen in terms of everyone's game. Uh, whereas when you go deeper into the season like February March time you've had a chance to look at them all you know where they're at you know where they're at mentally so you get a bit a better take on them whereas at the Australian it's really up for grabs. If we sort of focus on a couple of the the runners and the riders in this tournament so first up Ashley Barty she's Australian herself so it's a home tournament she's currently ranked world number one and obviously she won the French Open last year. It was her maiden Grand Slam victory. So she must be the favourite, surely? I think she's definitely got to be one of the top favourites. I mean, there's, there's quite a few names that we could throw in the mix, aren't there, with Asaka and Bianca Andreescu and then, of course, Serena. But with Ash Barty, I mean, she's just come storming through in the last year. Uh, as you mentioned, winning her first uh, Grand Slam title at the French, which kind of took everybody by surprise because she wasn't necessarily known as a clay court specialist. But she was someone who was an excellent doubles player who'd reached, you know, uh, winning Grand Slam titles in doubles. 
and then sort of transferred those skills into her singles game. But she took a little bit more time to develop, but she's a beautiful tennis player. Uh, she's also incredibly well-liked. You know, she's very, very down-to-earth. She's very Aussie, very popular amongst her peers. Uh, and, of course, being Australian, she's going to have enormous pressure riding on her shoulders. I think there's already massive billboards and adverts out there. But she seems to be able to cope with it and keep everything under control. Um, so she's definitely one of the favourites. And, um, you know, not only being a favourite, I think she's got a very crowd-pleasing game because she's such an artist on the court with a slice backhand. She's probably got the best volleys in the women's game. She really mixes it. You know, she's a very, very crafty player. So, I mean, you talk about the pressure that she's under there because, obviously, as an Australian, she will be one of the faces of the game out there. So you obviously play tennis at a professional level yourself. What is that pressure like? It's a very tough sport. It's a very harsh sport because, as we know, it's very gladiatorial. It's like old-fashioned gladiators, but with Mm. uh, rackets instead of weapons. And you're kind of pitting your ego and your psyche up against your opponent. And it's very, very draining emotionally and... It's a very clever sport, the way that the the game is structured. It's a great spectator sport because the audience can ride those pressure moments that present themselves constantly throughout the course of a match. So, you know, the way the scoreline is that when you get to break points or gain points or set points or what have you, those are massive pressure moments and the crowd feel it. You can sense the energy of the crowd changes and shifts as the pressure presents itself. And ultimately, it's the same in any sport, isn't it? It's about how you deal with pressure. And that comes down to a psychological strength. And quite often you might see players that will throw in a slightly shorter second serve on a massive point because they're slightly maybe questioning themselves. Whereas Mm. other players will really go for a second serve, get great depth on it, great, you know, aggression on that serve. But that's because that's coming from a deep well of self-confidence inside. And I think... That will be the difference between certain players. It's a psychological battle at the end of the day. One of the players who pundits talk about a lot when they talk about sort of dealing with the the psychological side of things is, of course, GB's very own Jo Conta. Yeah. She was struggling a bit with her fitness at the end of last year. Yeah. But, you know, she does often do quite well at the Australian Open. Is she going to be fit enough to play even? Well, that's a really really good question. I mean, she's played one tournament early on, lost in in the first round, actually, to somebody that she lost to at Wimbledon. But, you know, not to read too much into that, because you get a lot of uh, strange losses at the very start of the season. But um, one thing I always know about Jo Conta is that she's a very tough competitor. She loves Australia. Obviously, she was born there, Mm. brought up there until she was a a young teenager. And she's done well at the Australian Open in the past. She's been a former semi-finalist and a former quarter-finalist. So she clearly likes the conditions down there. And she has enormous respect on the tour for being a very gritty competitor. But she did have an amazing season last year, considering it started at quite a low ebb. And then she went on to reach, you know, quarters at Wimbledon. She was a uh, first-time semi-finalist at the French Open, having not really got through the first round for many years. So she really surprised everybody with her, her level last year. And then, as you mentioned, towards the back end, it sort of tailed off a little bit with lots of injuries. But from what I've, I've heard is that, you know, she's fit again and she should be able to play. And, you know, I, I think she's somebody who's, I call her quite a formulaic player. You know, she's not someone who has a lot of flair and finesse. But she kind of gets her head down. You 
set her on the task and off she goes. And, you know, when she gets into the swing, she's very, very difficult to stop. So, you know, I think you know, certainly not one to be underestimated, that's for sure. Speaking of someone not to not to rule out, you did mention her before, Serena Williams. So she's just won her first title since the 2017 Australian Open, which yeah. she won. And after which she announced her pregnancy, took a bit of time off to have her baby. And she's been in plenty of Grand Slam finals since then. She just needs that one more to get her 24th Grand Slam and equal Margaret Court's record. Yeah. Is this it? Is now her time? Well, I think so. I I think the fact that she's committed to go out early ahead of the Australian Open and play in Auckland, she played doubles and the singles. And as you say, she just won that title, the first one as a mum. That sends a huge message to, to the rest of the tour. And, you know, I think it's remarkable that having had a baby that she's even been in four Grand Slam finals. That's just unbelievable. You know, a lot of players in their entire careers would love to be in one Grand Slam final. And here we're talking about a woman who is arguably the greatest that's ever played the game, who's sitting on this sort of 23, one below the the ultimate record that Margaret Court holds. And she just hasn't quite been able to get herself over that final finishing line, or, or at least to equal that, that record. But I think this win in Auckland, she's come out, she's played five matches, She's going to be fit, ready, raring to go. And, you know, I think she's 38 now. It's quite incredible that she's still playing such a high level of tennis as a mum as well. But, you know, I I think every time you see the the name Serena Williams in a draw, you have to put her as one of the the favourites because, you know, with her record, status in the game, the aura that she brings out onto court, and there's going to be enormous support for her. You know, people want to see her achieve this great thing. I think we've been following her career since she was like a young 16, 17-year-old. And I think a lot of people would just love to see her do it because she's had an amazing career. Yes, there's been some bumps in the road. Yes, there's been some pretty tricky moments with her emotions on the court and what have you. But she still has come out fighting. So... You know, let's watch this space and see what she can achieve down in, in Melbourne. I mean, I all Grand Slams basically have become for me about Will to yeah. get her title. Yeah, well, they have. And I think because, you know, it's not often that you see someone of this calibre in any sport. And I'm lucky enough that it's in, in the sport that I follow. But you don't often see someone breaking through to win 23 mm. Grand Slam titles. I mean, it's just extraordinary. Extraordinary. You know, as we say, we're, we're, when we're watching all these players, if they get one or two, it's amazing. And here is someone who is sitting on this piece of history. And that is presumably why she's continued to play late into her 30s, because I'm sure if she'd got this record earlier, who knows, she probably would like to be sitting back and in, enjoying life you know, off the tour. But it's tough, tough enough trying to play on the tour without a child. Her time will be very split now and she has to manage that time very carefully. And of course, fitness-wise, it's been a little bit up and down with coping with injuries and everything. But there's no question that she wants it so badly. And I admire the fact that she's lost these four Grand Slam finals and here she is yet again putting herself in a position to try and do it still. Absolutely. Um, Let's see if she can. I mean, it must be so hard to keep going back out there and yeah, have it I think so, so close, you know. Well, that's, that's the thing. And I think it's the fact that she hasn't been knocked down by it. She's mm. continued to come back. 
And each time really, really nervous in the final moments, that Wimbledon final where she lost to Halleck. She was, I mean, I was in the, the commentary box watching and I was really close to her facial expressions and everything. And she was just almost terrified. And there was something almost very human about the fact that, wow, this is this person who's got all these Grand Slam titles, but she's still human because she's still feeling nerves and pressure. But again, it happened in the, in the US Open final just a couple of months later where she lost to this young 19-year-old, Bianca Andriscu. And yet, you know, she's clearly gone away. She's done her off-season. She's fit, raring to go. And here she is. She's just won first tournament in 2020 and, and it has had the most perfect preparation going into Australia. So, you know, I'm, I'm excited about the fact that she's there and she hasn't hung up her racket and here she is going to have another go at it because it's a great storyline for the tournament. Absolutely. You've said it's increasingly hard to predict who is going to win any given Grand Slam, but I'm going to ask you anyway. If you were a gambling woman, who would you be putting your money on right now? Oh, it's so hard. And especially until you've seen them all play, you know, it's, it's easier to get a take on it when you've seen them in their first couple of matches because any one of them is vulnerable in the first couple of rounds because there's nerves. A lot of them don't have too many matches under their belt, so anything can happen. But right now, I would, I'm kind of tempted to say Serena. I really am. I'm, I'm tempted to say that because of how she's performed already this year. And going into it, there's a, I mean, there's never not a motivation or hunger. But the fact that she's set down the precedent right from the word go, you know, she's going to mean business. It's going to, she's going to take some beating, that's for sure. I'm very excited that you said that. So, yeah, <laughs> fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. Yeah. I really hope she yeah, does it. So. Yeah, I hope so. <laughs> you can watch all of the courts and all of the matches live on Eurosport and the Eurosport Player at eurosportplayer.com. Annabelle, you'll be there doing your thing. I will. I'm so excited about it. It's a wonderful tournament. It's a lot of fun. It's one of the, the most favourite tournaments of all the players, so I'm really looking forward to it. And where else are we going to see you popping up over the over the rest of the season? Actually, I'm down to be in Miami. I'm down to be in uh, Dubai in February, Miami in March, and then Madrid. And then, of course, like the French Open in Paris, and then Eastbourne and Nottingham, perhaps Wimbledon, uh, US Open, and then, well, quite a few tournaments along the way in Shenzhen at the end of the year, the O2 for the men. I'm, I'm all over the place. You're I have everywhere. a very big, big well, well-worn suitcase. <laughs> it all sounded very glamorous until you said Nottingham. Uh. <laughs> well, oh, well, we won't give them such a hard time. Actually, it's a really nice venue and a very traditional venue that has a, a, a long-standing history with tennis. So actually, I really enjoy the week there in, in Nottingham and it's on the grass courts. It's always beautiful to watch grass court tennis. But, um, you know, I think that's the fun of the tour. It's, it's in many different parts of the world. It takes in many cultures. And I, I pinch myself every every year that I come out to do it. I'm, I'm very, very lucky. Annabelle, thank you so much for joining us. Pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Standard issue for all women.